You guys may be seated, and if you brought your Bibles today, we're going to be uh, primarily in the book of Acts, chapter 5 and chapter 6. Uh, we'll come back next week and address chapter 7 together. Uh, but I want to take the next couple weeks, and I want us to look at the life of Stephen and how that the Holy Spirit prepared Stephen, uh, began to work through Stephen, and began to use him for the glory of God to make a lasting impact that went way beyond Stephen's life. If you know the story of Stephen, you know that he kind of splashes upon the scene of the New Testament in Acts chapter 6. We hear of Stephen being chosen with uh, seven men that were going to serve the needs of widows in their uh, this exploding church. And by the end of chapter 7, just one chapter later, something that you and I could read his whole narrative in 10 minutes or less, uh, Stephen is stoned to death and is done. And I don't know about you, but I look at his life and think, man, this was an up and rising guy. He was, he was an evangelist at heart. He was ready to, to take on the world. He had a brilliant mind. The Spirit of God was working through him powerfully. And just as quickly as we see him splash on the scene, it's like he's just stoned and killed and gone. But as we'll see today and again next week, the, the impact, the long-term impact of Stephen's life lives on even today. Uh, it impacted a guy named Saul who later had his name changed to Paul, who ended up writing half of our New Testament. And um, so I want us to look today at how the Spirit of God worked through Stephen's life. I want to remind you as we look at these different characters in Scripture that the hero of the story is not the character. I don't want you to walk out of here today and say, man, Stephen was just an on-fire, good guy that God really used. The hero of the story is Jesus. The hero of the story is, is God and his Holy Spirit that, that works through. Stephen, had the Holy Spirit not been involved in Stephen's life, Stephen would have accomplished none of the things that he accomplished. Stephen wouldn't have had the courage and the boldness and all the things that we're going to see in his life story. He would have had none of that had the Holy Spirit not done a work in Stephen's life. Now, why that's good news is this, that if God can take a guy like Stephen, fill him with his spirit, and use him for eternal purposes... There's hope for you and there's hope for me that God could do the same thing through us. So I want us to, to spend some time this morning kind of looking at Stephen, uh, the, the, the character of Stephen this week and then the message of Stephen next week. And, and I hope that we can gain out of this to see what the Holy Spirit can do as he takes an ordinary person who's surrendered to God and uses him in a, in a powerful way. Um, so um, when Stephen comes on the scene in chapter 6, some things have just happened in, in Acts chapters 1 through 5 that I want to just take just a minute and kind of briefly bring you up to speed on what has just happened prior to this. You know uh, that Jesus was, uh, was resurrected from the dead, that Jesus went back to be with the Father. He told the disciples, I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to wait until the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to fill you. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And so they go back and they huddle up together. And then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit uh, descends upon them in, 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 in tongues of fire. And, and, and you know that great Pentecostal message that was preached that day where 3,000 people got saved. And then the Bible says they began to meet together. They were in community together. They began to do life together. They shared all they had together. These guys built a family together, and the Christian movement begins to take place. The, the Christian church, the, the, the birth of that church in Acts chapter 2, continues through 3, 4, and 5. Uh, as, as it begins to grow, uh, there is persecution that comes against the church very early on. The apostles are arrested again and again and again and thrown in jail. They're threatened. They're beaten. They're told that they can no longer speak the words of Jesus 
to the crowds. The, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of that day are so jealous of what's taking place in this movement that they try to begin to sabotage the Christian movement. They threaten these guys. They, they, again, they throw them in prison. They beat them. They do all these things thinking that they can somehow silence through persecution, silence the movement that God's begun through his Holy Spirit. In the midst of all that, that, that persecution just seems to, to unify the believers even tighter. Uh, the Spirit of God shows up, and where the persecution is great, the grace of God is even greater. Where the persecution is, is mounting against these people, the power of God is demonstrated in ways that, that these men can't even begin to explain. And the church just continues to explode. Some estimates place the, 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 the numbers of the people involved in the New Testament church. By the time Stephen comes on the scene, some estimates say the church had already grown to 20,000 people. We know that the last time we get a record was there was 5,000 men plus women and children. By the time it reaches Stephen, it's not through growing. It's going to continue to grow. And so God's doing this great big work. Can you imagine if our little church went from this size to 20,000 in less than a year. Can you, can you imagine the, the logistical nightmares of that? <laughs> Where would we put them and what would we do and how would we take care of them and who was going to minister to this group and to that group and all these different things? And, and these are logistical things that are going on in the New Testament church. The, the church is exploding. The Spirit of God's doing an incredible work. The people are together. They are in community. They are sharing their, their resources. But as we're going to see as, the, as, as Stephen's story is introduced, that one of the things that brings Stephen and these others to the forefront is that there's two groups of widows. And one group is complaining that they're getting overlooked. They're not getting their fair share of the daily distributions of food. Now, the reason that they would need daily distributions of food was, was that what had happened was that on, on the day of Pentecost, there was this huge groundswell of people that would come into Jerusalem. They would come in for Passover and for these different festivals. And, and so the population of Jerusalem would just, just be huge at this time. People from all over would make this trip to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover and, and, and these different festivals. And what happened was at that time is when the Holy Spirit came and the Spirit of God fell. And, and all of a sudden there's this birth of the New Testament church. And a lot of those who had made the trip in never made the trip back home. They were what the Bible's going to refer to as, as Grecian Jews, or some translations call them uh, Hellenistic Jews. And, and, and what those people were, were people who lived outside of Jerusalem in Greek-speaking areas. Uh, one of the things that was being done in that time was Rome had taken over the, the control and, and, and the authority of, of Jerusalem. And one of the things that the, uh, the leader of Rome wanted to do was to, to cause everybody in his kingdom to speak the same language. And so they issued an edict. And it was a, a period called Hellenism where, where they began to, to force everybody to learn Greek. Now, the Jews held on to their Hebrew language, and they didn't want to let go of that. They wanted to, to speak their own language, and it was Aramaic, and it was Hebrew, and, and, and yet the, the leaders of Rome were saying, you're going to have to learn Greek. That's going to be the, the language of the land. And so these people in these outlying areas just began to give up their Hebrew and began to learn Greek. That happened for a couple generations now. So some kids were born who didn't speak Hebrew, but just spoke the, the Greek language. Now, this is a neat thing that God's doing. It's, it's just neat to see the sovereignty of God because what God's doing is using a pagan leader to set the groundwork for the gospel to spread because everybody had to learn Greek. That's why our New Testament's written in Greek. It was written in a language that everybody in that day had been forced to learn how to speak. And so instead of having all these different dialects like you see on the day of Pentecost, now everybody can speak a little bit of Greek. 
So the gospel is written down in Greek, it's spoken in Greek, it's communicated in Greek, and everybody in the land can begin to understand it. But what began to happen was there was these, these Hebrew-speaking uh, Jews that lived in Jerusalem that refused the, the, the modernization. They refused the, the learning of the Greek. They, they may have learned a little Greek to do trading in the marketplace, but, but they certainly were not embracing that, and their worship services were certainly not changing over to that. Those guys called themselves the, the real true Jews. They were hardcore. They were the, the hard shell. They were going to stick with it, and they were, they were it. All these others that lived in these outlying areas that the Greek culture had kind of begun to impact, they were just marginal Jews. They weren't really the real deal. I mean, they're, they're speaking Greek in their services. They're reading the, the Septuagint, which was a, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. I mean, they're using these weird translations in their church. And so they were looked on with great suspect. The, the Hellenistic Jews, the Grecian Jews, the ones that spoke Greek were the minority. The, the Hebrew ones that still lived in Jerusalem considered themselves the authentic ones. And so there was this, this looking down your nose at, at each other, if you will. There was this division that was there. So Satan has tried early in the church through persecution to destroy the work of God. That didn't work. We read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which is this corruption where we're going to promise something but not deliver on it. And God dealt with that. And so Satan turns to a third tactic. He says, well, you know what? If I can't kill them through persecution, if I can't get them corrupt, then I'm just going to divide them. I don't know if you ever, you've ever been a part of a church that's got division in it. But there's really nothing worse than that. To be a part of a church that that it's just they're not together they don't love each other they just is constantly a fight i've been in churches where every every business meeting you just hold your breath and say lord i hope the building doesn't blow up that's that's sad and that's what satan does in a lot of churches he divides he he he, he pits people against each other well here's his perfect opportunity we've got the grecian jews and we've got these hebraic jews and and they look at suspect with each other and they're like eh, i don't even like those people and what happens is, we read in Acts chapter 6, that the, the Grecian Jews, the minority group, says, look, man, we're not, we're not being taken care of like these others are. Now, they made a trip into town and never gone back home. They were that company that just wouldn't leave. <laughs> you know, here they are. They came, and, and are you ever going home? You know, it was one of those kind of things. And, 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 and these guys just stuck around and stuck around. And so there may have been some animosity there. Nobody could get a hotel room in town. Everything was full. You know, all the restaurants after church, you know, they would race to the restaurants and they would all, it was rough. And so they had this animosity going with each other. And we read in Acts chapter 6, it says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing. So the church is still growing. God's still adding to its number. The Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. So what happens here is that there's this legitimate problem. The church is growing faster than it can develop ministries, than it can develop leaders, than it can handle these problems. It's growing, and, and there's growing pains that are going on here. There's, there's things that are happening. The, the, the growth is just exploding, like I said, up to about 20,000, some would estimate. Can you imagine being the leader of that big of a group and trying to make sure that everybody's needs were met? The reason they were having to feed a lot of the widows was there was no social security, no welfare, no none of those government programs to do those types of things. And the church had always done that. 
But when these former Jews became followers of Christ, the synagogues that they say, well, you're no longer under our care. You don't follow our rules. You don't believe in our theology. You're not doing what we're asking you to do. You are on your own. And all of a sudden, all these widows are shoved out the door. And the church had been their care. The, the, the synagogues and the Jewish temple had taken care of those ladies. And now all of a sudden, that responsibility falls upon this New Testament church. Their life was dependent upon that. And this one group felt like they were being overlooked. And so what happens is, if, if they're, they're there and Satan's trying to divide the church, he wants to pit one group against the other. Your group's getting more attention, more food, more stuff than we are. So this comes to the attention of the 12 apostles. And, and, and look what scripture says here. It says, so the 12 gathered together all the disciples. They gathered together the church. And they said this. They don't deny that there's a problem. In fact, they admit openly that we've got a problem. We are growing faster than we can support. We are doing more than we're able to, to take care of ourselves. And they said, but here's the, here's the deal. The 12 say, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. This is important and this needs to be done. But we can't neglect the call of God upon our life to be able to take care of these basic human legitimate needs that are there. So they say to the group, brothers, you choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and of wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, I know at this point the Baptist church had not been birthed because they didn't call together a committee. They didn't have a business meeting. They said, we've got a problem. And we need to address it. And we need to do so immediately. But what they did is they went to the church body and they said, guys, look, we, we've got a responsibility as the apostles. We've walked with Jesus. We've witnessed with Jesus. We, we, we've served with Jesus. And we've got a responsibility to help form the theology. We've got a responsibility to, to, to make sure the church is on track and to make sure that we continue to take the Great Commission to our world. We have got to be the ones, the pastors and the teachers, have got to be the ones that are equipping the people to do the work of ministry. And so they go to the church and say, look, we've got a responsibility for you. You've got to look among yourselves now. And we want you to choose seven men that can take on this responsibility. Seven men who can step up, that can, that can take on this responsibility because we want to hand it off to them. We want to turn it over to them. The apostles were not going to micromanage it. The apostles did not have to show up at every single meeting. They didn't have to show up every single day and, 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 and serve in the soup lines. They didn't need to do that. The apostles needed to be devoted to the, to the attention of prayer and to the ministry of God's word, verse 4 says. So they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to call you together. We want you guys to, to do something. We want you to, to, to meet together, to pray together, to select seven people that, 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 that rise to the top. There were, there were several criteria they gave here for those who would be selected. Look at what they said. Number one, we want you to select seven men. These would be men that would lead and serve these widows. They needed to be from among you. In other words, part of the body, part of the community, part of the, the, the core of who we are. So they need to be men that are part of the core. They need to be known to be. In other words, they need to have a testimony, a track record, a, a proven history. These guys need to have already proven themselves in the church that they're trustworthy, that they're capable, that they're, that they're honest and that they're legit. These need to be men that, that we look at and we, they, they have a, a reputation that's already uh, been established. These aren't newcomers. These aren't guys that have just 
shown up. Now, now, granted, the church is brand new, right? The, the church is just months old at this point. But there are those who have been filled with God's Spirit that, that when you thought, who would be the guy? These names just came to the surface immediately. Let me ask you a question. If we look at this criteria, men who have a testimony, a proven track record, day in and day out, they're full of God's Spirit and they're full of wisdom. If we were asked today, if I ask you to pull out a piece of paper and you write down the names of men you know in our congregation who fit that criteria, would you be able to do that right now? Would it just be obvious? These are the guys. Boom, I know who they are. Now, a lot of times what we do is say, oh, well, this is a guy who's there every week. Okay. But there's a big difference in being spirit-filled and being pew-filled. <laughs> I'm here every week. That doesn't make us spirit-filled, right? I, I, I don't miss a Sunday. That doesn't mean that you're walking with God the rest of the days of the week. And so these guys were going to be men that, that were, were, had this track record of being filled with God's Spirit. In other words, they're under the, the influence and the leadership and the direction of God's Spirit. They're filled with wisdom. They have this, this, this ability to understand the Scripture and to make that known to other people. It's not just facts and figures, but these are guys who, who had all these things together. And so the, the, the complaint is, is lodged. It's, it's legitimate. The, the apostles say, look, here's the solution. You guys meet, and y'all find these seven men, and then y'all bring them to us for our approval. We'll lay our hands on them, we'll pray over them, and we will appoint them to carry out this ministry. In fact, we're going to hand it over to them. Now, why was that important? It was going to be important because if you pick the wrong person, corruption can set in. If you neglect that there or deny that there's even an issue, then division's going to set in. And if you don't get somebody that's spirit-filled and that's led and has the wisdom of God, there's going to be mistakes that are made, and maybe the situation will be worse than it would be even if uh, you had done nothing at all. So while we read this this passage, and we we can we can read through this guys in just a matter of seconds that, that these are men are known to be full of the spirit, known to be full of wisdom. This responsibility is going to be turned over to them. We're going to give ourselves, the apostles say, to, to the attention of prayer and to the ministry of God's word. Verse 5, it says the, the proposal pleased the whole group. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor, uh, Nicanor, I'll get it right, uh, Timon, Corinthians, and Nicholas. Aren't you glad you don't speak Greek? Some of these names just get me. It says they presented these men to the apostles who prayed, laid their hands on them, and the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. We read that story. And we go, okay, there was a problem. There was a solution. There was a plan implemented, problem resolved, and the church grew. Great. What I think sometimes we miss is that this was a make it or break it moment for the church. If they got it wrong, things fall apart. They get off track. There's setbacks. There's things that hold them back. Some will say that these were the first deacons in the church. But do you realize the term deacon is never mentioned once in the book of Acts? Now, it is in, in the epistles, and there's a place for that, but... But some would say, oh, this is the first mention of deacons. This is the first group of deacons. These are the first seven deacons in the New Testament. 
The book of Acts talks about elders and pastors and teachers. It doesn't mention deacons at this point. In fact, some of the commentaries that I've been studying this week say this. They think that this position that was created to meet the needs of these widows was a very short-term team. They stepped in, they fed the widows, they took care of the widows, but we're going to see right after Stephen's death, persecution is ratcheted through the roof and the church is scattered and all these visitors to town who needed food go back home to their own town. Problem solved. Committee dissolved. Team no longer needed. In fact, of the seven names that are listed, they're all Greek names, which tends to make us think that these were part of the Hellenistic group that lived on the outside. These were people who had come to town. They were going to take care of their own people. And so when those own people went back and took the gospel wherever they went, they set up probably similar things that continue to minister to the needs of people out there. But this group was not formed. What happens a lot of times in churches is that we form a group. We form a committee. We form a team. And then we fight forever to make that last forever. You ever been part of a church where you form a committee back in 1962 to meet a need? And here we are in today, and we're still trying to fight to keep that committee alive even though the need no longer exists. Sometimes we do that in churches, and we spend energy and resources and time doing things and propping up things that are no longer needed. That wasn't what happened here. This group had a legitimate need. They formed a, a, a response to it. They met those needs. But then by the end of Acts chapter 7, the church is scattered. And you don't see them continuing to prop up these seven people. In fact, of the seven, only two of the names are ever again mentioned in the New Testament. Philip and Stephen. Both were evangelists and both went on to, to, to preach great messages and to take the gospel to other places. Uh, Stephen is going to take the gospel right there in Jerusalem before he is killed. Um, Philip is going to be the one who takes the gospel to Samaria and then to the Ethiopian eunuch who takes it back to Ethiopia. These two men were going to be used of God, but of the seven, those are the only two names that are ever again mentioned in the New Testament. So what, what we have here is we have a man named Stephen that, that kind of comes to the, the front. And uh, it, here's some things that we know about Stephen from this passage. Just follow along if you will. Watch this. Here's what we know about this guy named Stephen. The first mention is in chapter 6, verse 3. It says he was a man who was known to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. In chapter 6, verse 5, it says he's also a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. So he's full of the spirit and wisdom. He's full of faith in the spirit. In, in 6, 8, it says he's full of God's grace and God's power. We're also told that he did great wonders and miraculous signs. This is an interesting fact I found out this week I never really thought about. In, in, the, in the New Testament, only Jesus, the apostles, including Paul, who called himself an apostle, Stephen, Philip, and Barnabas are the only ones ever mentioned doing miraculous signs and wonders. So he's in an elite group of people here who, who God's spirit is so powerfully on him that he is doing signs and wonders and different things like that. Uh, we know of Stephen that he is, he is opposed in the story, that, that, that what happens in this story of his life is that, that he's got all this power uh, the, of the spirit of God that's on him, and he's speaking and debating and teaching the word of God. And let's look at it, verses uh, 8 and following. It says, now Stephen was a, a man full of God's grace and God's power. He did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose. Have you ever noticed that? Every time God's spirit gets going, there's opposition that comes, right? 
Anytime you set your heart to do what God wants you to do, it seems like at that moment Satan shows up and begins to fight harder than ever. Temptations tend to increase. We have opportunities around us to, to kind of skirt the issues and bend the rules and to just, just once we'll compromise. Well, here's Stephen. He's a man that's full of God's grace and power. God's doing great things through him, and opposition arises. The opposition came from members of a synagogue of the freedmen, uh, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. It's kind of interesting. One of those areas is where Stephen would be from. The other is an area where Paul probably was from. So these, these synagogues, and, and, and estimates place about 480 synagogues had popped up um, in, in the, the Jewish area. These synagogues were, were first done when they were sent back to Babylon, and they, didn't, they couldn't make the trip to the temple. So synagogues would pop up where the, where the Jews would worship. They had about 480 of those. Well, three of the, the leaders of three, or three of the groups of those came to oppose Stephen. But look what it says in, in, this, in this passage. It says, these men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Stephen is so filled with God's spirit. He's so filled with God's wisdom that even as these three groups, it's three on one here, man, it's tag team debate. And they're coming at Stephen, just one after the other after the other. Scripture does not say this, but, but I, I think it's possible maybe even probable that one of these debaters that's taking on Stephen is the Apostle Paul. It's one of the synagogues from Paul's hometown. And Paul was that up and rising Pharisee, remember? He was, he was, he was the guy that, that he says, you know, I was, I was advancing far beyond all of my peers. Why wouldn't you put your best debater up against this guy who's spreading these gospels? We know that Paul was there because when they stoned Paul, it says, I mean, Stone Stephen, it says Paul was there holding their coats, giving approval to his death. So there's, there's a great possibility that, that in the midst of this, this great debate, and when they say they argued, it means they debated. It's a great possibility that Paul was one of the guys debating Stephen. It may have been Paul's first defeat. They could not stand up against Stephen's wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. There is a fine line that takes place when we hear the gospel and we believe the gospel. Some folks that hear the gospel, they hear the truth, turn against it violently. Others that hear it embrace it wholeheartedly. And, and I know some people say, well, surely Paul wasn't involved in this because Paul's going to be the guy that's going to try to destroy the church. And had he heard the gospel, Paul would have turned to Jesus right away. Not necessarily. How many of you turned to Jesus the first time you heard the gospel? Most of us didn't. Most of us heard the gospel and we recoiled against it. We, we, the, the message of the cross was, was foolishness to us. The message of the cross was, was absurd or it was, it, was, it was just plain hard to swallow. I think Paul was there. I, I, don't, I can't prove that. But I'm telling you what, I know he was present. And I think he may have been one of the debaters. And I think Paul may have suffered his first defeat here. And I think that through Stephen, some of the seeds were planted. It's hard to, to escape the truth of the gospel once it's been presented to you. 
And so here they are. He's opposed by these three guys. He speaks and debates with them with great wisdom and the power of God's spirit. When they can't refute him with facts, they resort to the same tactic they used that got Jesus crucified. Let's bring in some false witnesses. Let's twist his words a little bit and accuse him of heresy and blasphemy. And let's say he's speaking against God, he's speaking against the temple, he's speaking against Moses. Oh my gosh. And so they hire these guys to, to come in. They persuade these people to, to come in and to, to speak these false things about Stephen. It says in verse 11, they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people just like they did with Jesus. And the elders and the teachers of the law, just like they did with Jesus. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we heard him say that this place, that, that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses had handed down to us. That's not at all what Stephen was saying. Stephen was reporting that Jesus said, you destroy this temple, Jesus' body, and in three days I'll resurrect it. He was hearing Stephen say that Jesus was the fulfillment of Mosaic law. But that's what Satan does. He, he doesn't just come out with, with all-out lies. He, he twists the truth and twists our words and twists their meanings just enough to put us at odds with other people. And so when they couldn't refute him logically, they couldn't refute him with wisdom, they couldn't fight back the spirit of God which was working through him, they said, well, let's just lie about him, and we can kill him the way that we killed Jesus. It worked with Jesus, it'll work with Stephen. And so they began to produce these lies. Saul is there, and it's possible that Stephen's defense of the gospel sparked something deep within Saul's heart. Something that caused him the discomfort enough to want to fight back and try to destroy this church at all cost. So there's a fine line between hearing the gospel and, and hating the gospel. Saul, who had been the guy with all the answers, had no answers for the gospel of grace that Stephen was preaching. Chapter 7, we're going to see next week Saul's, uh, Stephen's message and how he preaches this message before the Sanhedrin. Saul was there as Stephen is stoned. So sometimes what we do is make the mistake of equating the length of a person's life with the impact of a person's life. Sometimes we'll do a funeral and say, oh, so-and-so lived to be almost 100 years old, kind of like Betty. And... I'm sorry, Betty, but it's your birthday. I got to pick on you a little bit. We equate the length of a person's life with the fullness of a person's life. And that's not a good equation. Some people live a long, long time and never accomplish anything eternal. And others die very, very young and accomplish more in that short span because the Spirit of God rested upon them and worked through them. And so guys, we look at Stephen's life and we go, man, he, he preaches. We, we've only got one message of the great evangelist named Stephen. And it cost him his life. What a waste. But I would argue it wasn't a waste at all. That God and his sovereignty already knew what he wanted to do through Stephen. There was a guy that God was raising up named Saul who he would later call Paul. 
who would take the gospel to the whole known world, write half of our New Testament, and testify with his final breaths about the greatness of God's grace. Was Stephen's life a waste? Not at all. Some have even gone as far as to call Stephen the forerunner of Paul because of the great message that he preached and the impact that that message had on Paul's life. We know this much. We know that all the way through Paul's testimony, through the, the rest of the, the book of Acts and through his, his letters, that Paul could never get away from the death of Stephen. It kept coming up again and again and again in Paul's messages. I persecuted the church. I killed people. I gave approval to Stephen's death. It keeps coming up. Paul never got away from that moment where he saw the display of God's grace in a way that he had never, ever seen it before. Stephen was guided and used by the Holy Spirit for his debates, for his message, the seeds that he was going to plant, for the, the hearts that were going to be pricked, for the, 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 the way that was prepared for the gospel then to go to the rest of the world. It's right after Stephen's death that the church is scattered. They've been huddled up, 20,000 of them in Jerusalem. And the persecution that comes, beginning with Stephen, scatters them and they take the gospel to the, the world in which they live. Stephen played a part in that. The problem is that many times we resist the filling of God's spirit that Stephen operated under. We want enough of God's spirit to get us through life comfortably, but not enough to get us killed. We, we want to live under God's control as long as that means prosperity and peace and, 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 and just an easy life. We want that. But that wasn't what Stephen was after. We're convinced that our way many times is better than God's way. That our life is more important than anything else around us. Sometimes we think that preserving my life and my reputation, maintaining my control over all circumstances, is more important than preserving the gospel and making it known. What, what if Stephen had compromised his message? What if he said, hey guys, look, y'all just misunderstood what I said. Let me, let me explain to you what I was really saying about Jesus' life and what I really meant about Jesus fulfilling the law. What if, let me just back away from this and let me just get the spin doctors out and we'll walk this thing back and I'll preserve my position. That opportunity would have been missed. Paul would not have been confronted with the gospel. Stephen would have lived, but his life wouldn't have mattered. Sometimes we fear men more than we fear God. Many times we're more concerned about promoting ourselves than we are about promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many times we use others rather than serving others. And sometimes, if we're honest, we view our spiritual progress. Stephen was a man that stood head and shoulders above the other men in the church. Sometimes we view our spiritual progress as a ticket to the top rather than the qualifications needed to serve. You hear what I'm saying? Well, if I go to church every week, if I write a check every once in a while, if I teach a class or I do this or do that, then I will be elevated and I won't have to do any of the dirty work. Stephen didn't see it that way at all. 
Stephen served and when given the opportunity to serve the least of these, the, 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 the minority widows, he says, you got it. I'll do it. And, and I'm going to continue to do that as long as God gives me breath. Sometimes we allow other people's actions to dictate our response and to justify our sinful response to them. Stephen didn't do that. We know that even as he finishes his sermon and they pick up their stones and they drag him to the edge of the city and begin to stone him, Stephen's praying for his persecutors the way that Jesus prayed for you and me from the cross. Stephen was controlled not by fear, not by hatred, but by God's spirit. And even as he's drawing his final breath, he looks up into heaven, he sees the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Stephen was a man who had trusted everything in his world and in his life to the care of God and God's spirit. And the only way that you and I could ever do that is for us to die to our sinful selves and to begin to live for God's glory and God's glory alone. I think that because Stephen was filled with God's spirit, and again, the hero of this story is not Stephen, but the hero of the story is the, the God that worked through Stephen. Because he's filled with God's spirit, he displays some things that we need desperately in our world today. Stephen displayed the glory of God in the midst of the vileness of his world. Stephen displayed the peace of God in the face of final persecution. He displayed the love of God in the midst of the hatred of mankind. He displays the boldness of God in the midst of a crowd that was scared to death. If the gospel ever got out, it would destroy church as we know it. He spoke truth in the midst of manufactured lies against him, never defending himself. Listen, guys, if you want an interesting study, look at the life of Stephen, just the little bit that we know about him, and compare that to his Savior, Jesus. When Jesus was accused, he didn't open his mouth. When Jesus was accused, he didn't try to defend himself. He stayed focused on the Father's purpose and will. When Stephen is accused, he doesn't try to defend himself. He just preaches the gospel harder than he's ever preached it before. Stephen displays spiritual vision in the midst of spiritual blindness. He displays God's light in the midst of man's darkness. God's power over man's powerlessness. God's wisdom over man's foolishness. And he dies displaying God's forgiveness to his ungracious executioners. In Stephen, we see a man who's been transformed by the Holy Spirit. Stephen could have never accomplished these things on his own. You remove the presence of God's Spirit and you've got a man who falls flat, who runs away, who protects himself at all costs. So you take that same man and you fill him full of God's spirit and you've got somebody that the world can't, can't overcome. Somebody that the world cannot begin to compete with. In fact, in, in Acts chapter 5, right before Stephen comes on the scene, 
Stories told of the apostles, the 12 being arrested, put in jail. Remember that story? They were put in jail, kept overnight, because the next day they were going to put on trial and they were going to kill them. And the angel comes in the middle of the night, opens up the prison and sets them free. And says, look, I'm setting you free, but you're going to go right back into the temple courts tomorrow morning. And you're going to preach the, the full message of the gospel again. So they get up the next morning. They head straight back to the temple courts, which is right in the middle of Satan's playground. And they begin to preach the gospel again. Meanwhile, the Sanhedrin assembles in their little room. And they call for the twelve to be brought in so they can put them on trial. They can convict them and they can execute them. And they go to get them out, and the guards are there standing at their post, and they go into the cell, and there's nobody there. What in the world? And while they're trying to figure out how these men got out, somebody comes and says, hey, those guys that got arrested yesterday, they're back in the temple courts praying and preaching again. And they go to arrest them, and now they're really mad. And they want to put them to death, it says in 533. They want to put them to death. But there's this Pharisee named Gamaliel, teacher of the law. He was honored by everybody. And he says to them this, he says, guys, listen, there's been other people that have kind of come up and, and claimed to be the Messiah, and we execute them the way we executed Jesus, and all the followers just disperse, and it comes to nothing. It's happened several times, he says. We've executed Jesus, and we expect that this group will just dissolve and go away. But he, he makes a comment in verse 38. He says, therefore, in this present case, chapter 5, 38, Here's my advice. Leave these men alone and let them go. For if their purpose or their activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. In fact, you'll find yourselves fighting against God. L listen to that and, and, and then look at Stephen. If Stephen's motivation, if Stephen's power, if Stephen's strength, if Stephen's courage, if, if all that Stephen has is of human origin, it's going to fail. But if what Stephen's displaying is of God, you can't stop it. You can't stop it. Here, let me give you the gospel right here. We're going to wrap it up, okay? Here's the gospel. If you leave here today and say, God, I'm going to try harder. To be the man I need to be, to be the woman I need to be, to be the teenager, the college student that I need to be. God, I'm going to try it harder in my strength than God. I'm going to show the world how much I love you. You're going to fall flat on your face. Because it's not what you bring to the table that matters. The only way that you and I can do what Stephen did is to say, Holy Spirit, I want to be surrendered to you. I need you to live in me, to control me, to empower me, to embolden me. I need you to be for me what you were to Stephen. That's the only way that you'll ever do what Stephen did. In fact, guys, it's the only way your life's ever going to matter. You can accomplish great things in the eyes of this world and never leave a spiritual impact on your family or a spiritual impact on your community or a spiritual impact in heaven. You can be a success in the eyes of the world and be a failure in the eyes of God. And for the longest time, we as a church have made the mistake of saying, just try a little harder. Just make up your mind to do it. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God offers you everything you need to do everything he's called you to do.
but you cannot do it in your own strength. I'm not asking you today to make up your mind to try harder. I'm asking you today to raise the white flag up the, up the, the flagpole and to say, Lord, I just surrender. I, I've tried in my own strength, and I'm still right where I started. But I want to make an eternal difference. I want to be used of you. I want, when, when I breathe my final breath, whether it's this afternoon or next year or 20 years from now, when I breathe my last breath, I want to know that I've spent my days doing what you put me here to do. In the power that only you could provide with the results that only you could accomplish. It's not about trying harder. It's about getting to the end of your rope and saying, Lord, I know I can't, but I know you can. And by your grace and by your power and by your spirit, you can make something out of this life, Lord. Stephen was transformed by the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the boldness of the disciples, the wisdom of God's spirit. He was filled with the heart of a warrior who stood in the face of his enemies and did not flinch. The courage of a martyr. He operated in the love of his Savior. Saying as the stones fell upon him the same words that Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them. The love of his Savior. And then we're told at the end of chapter 7. I'm sorry, in chapter 6. That all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin, verse 15, looked intently at Stephen. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What's that saying? That the glory of God had fallen upon him. Noticeably. They looked at him. And so he had the glory of an angel, the love of his Savior, courage of a martyr, the boldness of a warrior. He had it all because he had the Spirit of God living in him. So as we close today, let me ask you this. What have you allowed the Holy Spirit to do in you? Not what have you accomplished in your own strength. I don't care about that. I don't think God cares about that. But what have you allowed the Holy Spirit to do in you that could not have been done had the Holy Spirit not been there? Because those are the things that are eternal. And those are the things that are at the heart of what God's all about. What have you done? What has God done through you that only could be done by the Spirit of God? Are you fully yielded to Him? Are you allowing Him to control your decisions? control where you spend your time and how you spend your days. Stephen had a very short but surrendered life that accomplished maximum impact because he lived under the control of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit can do more in a short time than you and I can do in a lifetime. So the question today is not are you going to try harder but the question is today are you wise enough to say to the Lord can't, but I want to. And I need your spirit to start a work in me today that will make a difference for all of eternity. Would you admit that to the Holy Spirit that you need him today? Would you admit that, that you can do nothing apart from him that really matters? 
And in so doing, would you open yourself up for the Holy Spirit to come and do something in you that will impact your family, your church, your community, but even more importantly, would impact all of eternity. Let's pray together.